when you see something creeping in, there is a time and a place to, uh, to pause what we're doing and look directly at a belief system and to try to dissect it so that we can, as a church, uh, begin to identify it in the culture and most importantly, that we not buy into it ourselves. So there will be Scripture laced throughout tonight, but the main focus will not be like our normal routine of walking through a passage. We will be looking at an ideology, a, a, a godless belief system, and that will be sort of our, our goal for the next two weeks in particular. And remember, after two weeks on critical race theory, intersectionality, all these kinds of things, critical social justice, then we plan to have two weeks on the sexual revolution, which includes the LGBTQ plus agenda. And so, again, we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at what the world is particularly promoting right now and making central. And then we, we're going to spend the next weeks after that walking verse by verse through a book of the Bible to sort of counteract a lot of the things that we have previously seen. So, Greg, why don't you jump in? All right. We're going to start by reading from Jude. Uh, we're going to read the first uh, four verses kind of to set up you know, scripturally, why we are doing what we're doing here. So Jude, beginning in verse 1, says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. And we can fully resonate with what Jude's saying there in terms of what we're doing here tonight. Like, I would much rather just have a book of the Bible or a, a theology topic and let's just work through it um, but because of these false teachings and these just blatantly um, evil uh, perspectives and um, ideologies, um, ideas and perspectives, because of these things, we have to take time to counter them in light of what Scripture teaches. And so that's what Jude was doing. That's what we're having to do uh, because we have to contend for the faith. That's um, not your personal faith in Jesus, but it's a descriptive term for the entirety of the Christian faith. The truth that we hold dear is what we have to contend for because, as Jude says, there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed who are seeking to turn the church away from the truth. And so we have to contend against their teaching and their ideas so that we stay faithful to Jesus. These people that Jude was talking to, um, they were per <coughs> excuse me, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of ways you can deny Christ, and we need to understand that. You can deny him and just directly where you say, no, I don't believe in Jesus. I reject him. I don't want anything to do with him. You can also deny Christ by believing false doctrine, Fault, embracing false doctrine, embracing a teaching that is contrary to Scripture is denying Jesus. And so we are going to, as best we can, look at these things, as Mark was saying, um, so that we know what it is that they're saying and we're able to push back against it. Um, and I heard John Piper use um, an illustration a long time ago. He said, I felt like I'm, I'm trying to torch a glacier with a little lighter. Um, we are up against massively powerful forces in our culture today, 
pushing agendas and ideas that, you know, not just, you know, technically they're, they're false doctrine, but they are assailing our very idea of God himself. And so we need to be jealous for the truth. We need to be jealous for what Scripture teaches. Jerry, can you pray for us? And then uh, we'll begin to unpack some of these things. Yes. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that uh, you have given us your word. And Lord, we don't want to uh, stray to the right or to the left. We pray that uh, tonight would be helpful um, for uh, our sanctification um, and the sanctification of anyone who listens. But also, uh, Lord, that you would help us to defend um, the faith, that we would hold to the truth. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, the truth will set us free. It has um, in the Lord Jesus. So we commit this night to you and look forward to what you're going to um, teach us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so a, a number of months ago, we did a Saturday mini conference on this theme. And so I'm, I'm not going to assume that you've, you were there that day. Some of you were, some of you were not. We're going to sort of start from scratch and sort of build in, in a direction here. And I want to begin with a couple of important things. So th there's a lot of terminology in this topic that is, it's hard, frankly, to keep your mind on each of these terms, because there's all these new terms invented. And so we're just going to start with a couple of important terms to begin as building blocks moving in a direction. So one thing that, that is very prominent, even if you haven't heard the term, is something called standpoint epistemology. Now, that sounds fancy. Standpoint just is where you are, where you're, where you're positioned in life. And epistemology is how you know something, how you know that you know. Uh, epistemology. Well, standpoint epistemology is the idea that the world basically is broken down into, uh, to use, uh, we're just going to jump in. Okay, go this is, here we go. So, <clears throat> Karl Marx, I know you've got yours next to your bedside table, the Communist Manifesto. And it, when, you, when you begin, at the very beginning of, the, of Karl Marx's infamous book, he, he begins speaking about society, and he breaks everything down, as you know, proletariat, bourgeoisie, he talks about the oppressor and the oppressed. The, the common worker is the oppressed person, and the person with power uh, is the person who is the oppressor by definition. And so, you have these two groups, and if you're in one of those groups, all those negative or positive qualities are what you inherit as being part of this larger group. This is also commonly called identity politics today, where you have a group, a subset, and the group is more important than the individual. You, you just are part of a group, and the group is kind of what defines you. And he, he says, speaking of this group, he talks about freeman and slave, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, and he goes on and on. But you see here very early in the book, he breaks the whole thing down. You're either an oppressor, right? You own the means of production. You're the factory owners or whatever. Or you are oppressed. You, you, are, you are the common laborer. You're oppressed. And what's happened is, is Marx's beliefs have sort of evolved over time into a more uh, culturally widespread understanding where we've begun to apply those two categories, not just in economic terminology. We've started to apply them in what? Everything imaginable. So now what we've done is we've taken it in terms of uh, your ethnic background, we've taken it in terms of your religion, we've taken it in terms of male and female differences, and everybody is either in an oppressor or an oppressed category. And as I mentioned months ago, I am the worst, maybe we are the worst kind of people in the world because we have all the oppressor categories right here. So you ready? I am a man. That's a real bad thing, okay? That's really bad. I'm a man. I am also ethnically, I'm white. Uh, I am a Christian, uh, heterosexual, I am, what's another one? Uh, cisgendered, so that I believe that I am the gender that I am biologically. 
Am I missing something? Physically able. Yeah, f f able-bodied. So Jerry, you 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 get some extra amen. points on this right here. Yeah, thank you. So if you <laughs> don't forget, Pastor. <laughs> yes. Diabetes, isn't that worth something? <laughs> Diabetes. That, that, yeah. So Jerry's got it's some double. oppressor categories yeah. going pretty yeah, strong yeah. right here. Yeah. But for the uh, oppressed, I'm sorry, yeah, oppressed yeah. categories. Yeah. And so what you do is standpoint epistemology says that your position uh, as an oppressor, okay, limits the knowledge that you can have in this world. If you are part of oppressor groups, the dominant groups, then you see the world according to the way your power group controls the world, which is called the hegemony, okay? Hegemonic dominance. And so, the world is run by, people would argue, people like me, white, white, straight, cisgendered men who are Christian historically, that's who kind of runs the world. And so, the world was set up to benefit me so that I have male privilege, I have white privilege, I have cisgender privilege, I have every kind of Christian privilege, I have all these kinds of privileges because of who I am and how I'm born. And so, I have a very, I guess you could say, I see the world only in grayscale or black and white. Because I can only see the dominant culture, and that's what I am. But if you are a woman, even if you're white and Christian and the other things, if you're a woman, you can see the world in more colors than I can because you not only see the male-dominated culture, the hegemonic male-dominated patriarchal society that we supposedly live in, but you also see the world through the lens of female oppression. And so you have the main dominant approach that we see, but you also see in other colors because you can see female oppression. And then if you Here's the thing. No one is just one of these things. We're many of these things. So what we have is we have these, these identity groups intersect in all of us in many different ways. We're about 20 different intersecting identities. So if you are African-American and you are a woman, you see more of the world more clearly because of your victim status. Uh, not only do you have to understand African-American situation, you have to understand the female situation, but if you are also, say, transgender, then you have another view of victimology that you see, another aspect of reality that you can see. Or if you are Muslim, then you're part of a minority religion, it would be argued, or Hindu or Buddhist, and you can see the world in greater clarity. And here's the thing. The more supposed victim groups, oppressor groups, you can claim as your own, the higher you are on the authority totem pole in our society. So if you intersect with 10 different victim groups, the more you can claim. If you can claim 10 for yourself, then anyone who disagrees with you is saying that out of some kind of phobia. They're either transphobic, or they are Islamophobic, or they are homophobic, or whatever it may be that, that goes against you. But the more victim status groups you can claim for yourself, the better your authority is in our culture, and the more you can see reality clearly, because you understand all forms of oppression. Does this sound at all familiar to what we're seeing in society every day? And so the idea here is, Anytime, if a man were, like we've done in Sunday school, if a man were to teach what a woman's role is from the Bible, that is considered, you know, mansplaining, which is just a great word. <laughs> it is considered automatically sexist. You are just part of this oppressive patriarchy, pushing women back down in, in, into what you think is their place. And so, everything is interpreted in this grid, and, and I'm not going to go on and on, but just an example. So, uh, when, when I interact, especially with high school students, when I'm teaching, I have just found it to be the case that my students who grow up in Christian homes, a lot of them in wonderful Christian homes, they in their mind want to say what the Bible says. But in their emotions, they have a sympathy toward this grit. And what I mean is this. If the topic, and with a senior apologetics, it comes up every semester multiple times. There will be questions about the LGBT issue, okay? And when that comes up, what I can tell with the majority, I think a lot of my students, I don't know if it's the majority, a lot, is what I see is in their mind, they know what Scripture says, but in their heart of hearts, they, they, this is how it comes across. Okay, technically, that may be wrong, that lifestyle, but what's really bad is the way Christians have treated homosexuals historically. 
And, and I even had a conversation, I won't say the girl's name, but I had a conversation with one of our seniors just a couple weeks ago, right before graduation. And I said to her, because she, she seems to love the Lord and, and comes from a solid church, I said to her, I said, it was just private, there weren't a lot of people watching, it was just kind of during a break. And I just said, what, in your honest opinion, do you think the greater threat today is Christians mistreating and abusing LGBT people, which has happened, and that's wrong, we, you, know, you know, yelling or beating them or something, that's all wrong, we, we agree with that. Is that the greater threat, or is the tidal wave of the LGBT agenda a greater threat today? And she, she did candidly admit that she thinks that the ideology is the great threat of the moment, but in the emotions, people want to sympathize according to the oppressor and oppressed categories. So, can we jump off from this kind of building block, uh, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Um, going to the oppressor-oppressed thing, I want to put a little more background um, into what Mark was, was saying. You know, historically, uh, communism came out of, you know, Marx. Marxism's kind of the, 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 the idea communism is what it is in practice. Um, and because it saw, you know, these, it had these, these rigid categories of oppressor and oppressed, the goal for the oppressed was to overthrow and replace their oppressors. Now, in classical Marxism, this was in economics because they said, as Mark was saying, you know, you have those who own the means of production oppressing those who work. And so the goal is, is to overthrow those evil oppressors and reestablish something else. Don't really know what it's going to be, but it's not what was. Um, and the only way they understood that was through a violent revolution. And you see that especially uh, in the formation of the Soviet Union um, and the bloodbath uh, that took place as the Bolsheviks took power. Um, you think later in terms of, of China, um, Cuba, and, and a number of other places, um, Marxism and those thoughts found very fertile ground and it ended with violence, the, the massive loss of life under these systems um, because that's just how it works. Now, what's interesting is they knew that, um, and they saw, that would never take root in the United States and in the Western world. Um, it's just, we didn't have a stomach for it. We didn't have a tolerance for it at all. Um, they knew they would never be able to set up that kind of revolution, um, simply because of the influence of our, our rule of law, the influence of Christianity, the strength of the family. Um, Marx hated the family. Oh my word, he hated a, a, a dad and mom together raising kids. He hated that. And he knew that if he could kill that, then he would be well on his way to killing a society. And so what happened was later generations of, of the Marxist, um, of the Marxist uh, group said, well, if we can't overcome them through the violent revolution, then we can overcome them a different way. What we need to do is get into their institutions and start um, start sowing the seeds of this oppressor oppressed in all the categories that Mark was mentioning. And it's called the long march through the institutions, um, hence cultural Marxism. You've probably heard that term before, and it's kind of been turned into a, a boogeyman. Oh, you use cultural Marxism, you're being mean. Not, not if you know what you're talking about, okay? They, the, the goal of this new generation of Marxists wasn't the violent revolutionary overthrow. It was the, the subtle... 20, 30, 40-year plan of infiltrating all institutions of a society and infecting them with their way of thinking. Um, and that includes education, um, the, the military, the media, entertainment, um, athletics. Uh, eventually, um, we thought that used to be our safe ground for coming together 
um, as a culture. Um, and no, actually, it's not anymore. Nothing is exempt from this. And now even the church, if they could get in the church, that would be even better. And so it's called cultural Marxism uh, for that reason. It, it, instead of just economic, it recasts the oppressor oppressed in all sorts of different categories. Um, and once you get that seed sown, it's like also the leaven that Jesus talked about with the Pharisees, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Once you get it in there and it's not challenged and it's not fought against, it starts to spread. Um, and we're seeing the fruits of that in our society today. It really did march through all our institutions. Um, that's why we shouldn't be surprised that people are responding the way they are to the different things that are going on in our culture right now is because they've been taught this. It's been forced down their throats in college, not so much at the, at least initially in the high school level, but definitely at the university level, um, this stuff has been, has been promoted. And it leads into the whole issue of um, the social justice movement because we have to go to the Marxist root um, in order to truly understand what's going on with the social justice in our culture today. Um, it doesn't mean that that the, the, the social justice folks, um, BLM and other organizations like that, that they are the exact same as the original Marxists. But they do come from that. They come from that tradition. They're, they're, the fruit that they're bearing comes from that root. Um, and if you understand the root, then you can understand the fruit and why it is the way it is. And so think in terms of racial issues in our country um, and in the world today. And, you know, before we go into this, is a common charge that's, that's lobbed against what we're saying is, well, we're denying that racism exists. We're denying, we're not doing that at all. Racism is a particularly evil form of partiality. Um, and the Bible says a lot about partiality. Um, you know, favoring one person over another for, for evil means, um, for wicked, sinful means. Um, and so racism is, it, it is an evil thing, and it, it is part of our country's history. It's part of the church. How many Christians in the South endorsed slavery and stuff like that? I mean, we should be appalled um, that they did. Now, we're, we're on the, the back end of that, and we can learn from that. Um, but professing Christians who did not compromise the gospel in terms of how a person is made right with God still made really bad arguments in favor of subjugating um, a whole people and treating them often as less than human. So we're not denying the reality of the evil of racism or denying the history of it in our country. What we are pushing back against, and we have to talk about it in terms of what's going on culturally before we get into the church, um, but we're, we're, what we're saying is, is that that's not the defining thing about who we are. That's another narrative. You've heard the 1619 Project and stuff like that, trying to say that from the ground up all the way from the time the first slave ship came to the United States, that that is what defines the United States as a country. And that, is, that has been proven false on so many levels. Uh, but it's a narrative that people want to promote, and they don't care about the facts, even when the facts have been presented. Um, and so the, the reason we go into all of that is simply to say, um, we're on the heels of a lot of work of a lot of people trying to push a particular viewpoint. Um, and, and they figure the longer they just shout it and promote it, um, even when evidence is presented to the contrary, if, if you just keep shouting it loud enough, people will eventually give up and give in. Um, and as the church, we can't do that. And so I'm going to mention some terms and phrases. Mark mentioned some. I'm going to mention some more that are out there in the culture that we're starting to hear mentioned in the church. And this is not a good thing. You've probably heard white privilege, white guilt, white fragility, 
whiteness, whiteness studies, white women's tears, white splaining. You mentioned mansplaining. If you try to offer any kickback or pushback on issues like this as a white person, you're just white splaining. White silence, unconscious bias, systemic racism, social justice, research justice, microaggressions, microassaults, microinsults, internalized oppression, internalized racism, interest convergence. Interest convergence basically means that white people only support racial initiatives insofar as they see a benefit for it in themselves. It says it's impossible. Anytime white people do something to help race, it's really only to help themselves, not the people they claim to be helping. Um, hegemony, which Mark mentioned, hate speech, decolonization, and one we're going to mention because I got a book on it by a guy named Eric Mason, um, Becoming Woke. Um, you might be more familiar with that term. Um, that's being thrown around a lot. Other things getting into what we're going to talk about in a few weeks, heteronormativity, gender fluid, gender identity, homophobia, ecofeminism, climate justice, binary privilege, male privilege, queer theory, speciesism. That's actually a thing. You're oppressing other species as a human being if you think you're more important than animals. Um, tolerance and transgenderism. And again, we, all of this comes from the same original root. A desire to destroy society that has any kind of difference in terms of, of ability or outcome. Marxism, in its root, hates the fact that some will naturally have more than others. It can't stand that. Anytime there is any kind of disparity, that's another word you'll hear, it's because of evil oppression. It's not because some people might have done better with their decisions. It's not because some people might be more talented. It's simply because if you have more and some, for some reason you have oppressed somebody in order to get that. Um, so all of this funnels into critical race theory. Can I pause you right yes, there? Yes, go ahead. You, with, with the, take the microaggression uh, type of thing or microassault or whatever. <laughs> those, those are incredible. So my, microaggression has been, become an increasingly popular word. The assumption there with whatever topic it's dealing with is that, that uh, the idea that, say, sexism is rampant everywhere all the time or racism is rampant everywhere all the time. You just, if you just go under the surface just an inch, you're just going to find an enormous amount of, of sexism or racism. And then if there are tiny little things, like for instance, if a, if, if a person says, uh, what was the name of that guy who wrote the article? And you say, well, actually it was a woman who wrote the article. The assumption is that was a microaggression because what did you just do? You assume that only men write intelligent things. Isn't that why you said the guy who wrote the article? And th that shows that you have this internalized sexism deep within you. Why would you assume it was a guy? Because you're deeply sexist. You have like oh, this systemic sort of sexism that's just coursing through all your veins. And occasionally it shows up in these tiny little aggressions. You may not even mean anything by it to be harmful, but just the fact that you use the word guy rather than man or woman or woman, the fact that you said guy means, oh, see you, there it is. And so whenever there are tiny instances of small things, a mountain is read in to these tiny little expressions. So the way I may, like, I think Kelly at UGA and others may have been taught this, the way a guy sits on a bus on public transportation versus how a woman may sit on a bus, the man may sit back with his, you know, his shoulders wide, his legs sort of out, like kind of taking up more space saying, see, I'm dominant, I'm more important than you. And the girl may feel like, oh, I got to kind of tuck my legs together, kind of sit small in the corner. And you see here that this man on this bus is showing how he's just exuding sexism everywhere because look at how he's sitting there. The, you know, the guy's just tired, okay? He's just tired. He's coming home from school. But the, the, what happens is you, you read the worst imaginable reading of the tiniest possible thing, and you say, look, that chauvinist, bigot, sexist man, because he said or did this thing, look at how he was postured, look at the terminology he used, when this man may not, honestly, 
sexism or racism may not be a sin that this man struggles with hardly at all. This may not be near the sinner. He may have pride issues and other issues. That may not even be a thing, but it is reading the worst possible interpretation to the smallest possible actions that is then called a microaggression or a microassault. Well, and this is something we're going to get, um, talk about um, a little bit later. Um, we've got, by the way, we've got enough material for two weeks, so we're, we're just going to work through it as, as we're able. Uh, but this gets on the simple fact that um, there's a presupposition at, at play, which is why people see that. It's whether it's sexism, whether it's racism, they assume before an incident happens that that's already there. It's not, let's look at the facts and determine if it was there. They assume that it was already in play. And so the question you ask is not, does the facts and evidence point to this being a racist or sexist thing? It's, no, how was racism, how was sexism manifested in this? You see, that's a subtle difference. But it's already assuming that it's there. And that's probably one of the biggest problems we have with this whole movement is this presupposition, this fundamental assumption that whatever they say the oppression is, that it's just automatically there and that that's automatically your intent. Whether it was or not, it already is. And so you're already in the negative based on this. Um, and coming into critical race theory, you need to understand it comes from something called critical theory, which is a legal thing. And critical theory came out of the cultural Marxism um, that we're, we're talking, talking about and it's applying um, the principles of, of oppressor and oppressed and, and that standpoint theory and, and those things to the Western ideas of justice and law. And it begins to view, and it's full on now, it began to view with a vicious suspicion our long-held notions of justice, of right and wrong, of objectivity, meaning there's, there's truth and facts out there that are what they are, regardless of how we feel about them, it's true, it's there, it can't be denied. That is being questioned, that you can actually know. This comes out of postmodernism, but it's, it's in full force now. Can you really know facts? And if you claim that you know facts and you have objective truth, you're an oppressor. Because ob objectivity is a tool of oppression to put people down. Um, the necessity of facts and evidence to validate assertions and arguments. Um, again, it's a tool of oppression. It's a system, and here's another phrase you're probably familiar with now, framed by white supremacy in order to elevate white people at the expense of people of color. Critical race theory grew out of that mindset. It originally started as an attack on our legal system and a new way of interpreting law at, at fundamental levels, and now it's moved to race. And so critical race theory is a specific application of critical theory to the issue of race. Now, critical race theory, like a broken clock, sometimes can make accurate observations. But you don't endorse a broken clock because twice a day it's right. You don't say, oh, wow, it, it, it really gets this right. No, it's accidental at best. And if it's accidental at best, we want nothing to do with something that's fundamentally broken and corrupt. Um, we'd be foolish if we say, I'm going to carry a broken clock around because twice a day I'll know it's right. We don't do that. We go for a clock that works. Um, so critical race theory or CRT, what it does, it views all of life and society through the lens of race, especially how the concept of race is used as a tool of oppression at nearly every level of society. And it goes to economics, politics, religion, history, education, entertainment, and more. 
Um, one good definition says this, CRT sees race as the predominant structural element of American and other societies, and that all analysis of race must include systemic power, which is to say systemic racism, meaning it's everywhere. It insists it is everywhere, it's ordinary, it's permanent, and it's mostly and badly hidden. It's right in that, this is where the micro, it's hidden under the surface. You might not even realize how racist you really are, according to this. Um, one duty of the critical race theorist is to expose this hidden racism wherever it's found. Again, we have to speak culturally in order to understand what's being done in the church. It is, and I've even, I've, I can't remember where I saw this, but I read it or I heard somebody say it the other day. White supremacy and racism is America's original sin. It's a stain that we can never get rid of, and it affects every aspect of our society. But here's the thing. You see, definitions matter. And whenever you have a conversation with someone, you always want to make sure when you're using big terms that you, are, you have the same definitions of those terms. Um, because if you're like me, you know, raised on the heels of the civil rights movement, um, you know, we think racism as a personal prejudice animosity towards someone of a different skin color. Which, let's be clear, absolutely evil. Yeah. So, so any, any, any bit of that saying, okay, I, I am going to show favoritism or, or the opposite of that to someone based on the color of their skin or their ethnic heritage or their background or their economic status or whether they're male or female, absolutely nothing. This is the thing. So, someone could hear what we're saying and think we don't believe that. Of course, of course, of course, of course. We are opposed to real racism. What we're saying is what's happening here is racism is being redefined. Yeah. And when you redefine key terms, you end up uh, being con condemned for things that are not actually wrong. And so, we, we, real racism, 100% disagree with. But what's happening here is we're, we're hearing the redefinition of racism. Yeah. So, keep going, No, Greg. thanks. Yeah, and so here's the new definition of racism. Um, and again, establish, if you have a conversation with someone, make sure you know which definition you're working with. This is the new definition. It is this, prejudice employed in the systemic oppression of others. Prejudice plus power, okay? You see, the power thing comes in because who has the power? The oppressors. And so if you benefit in any way um, over someone of a darker skin tone than you, then you're a racist. You participate in a society that was built by white people for white people on the backs. And again, this is one of the most oh, like grievous parts of our, our history but on the backs of, of black, subjugated black people who often were treated as less than human. Um, but it's saying you, because you benefit from a society and you live in a society and you work in a society that, um, that, that they say was, that's the defining factor, you can't help but be racist. Whether you have any personal prejudice towards someone of a different skin color, you can't help but be racist. You are racist. Let, let me, just to give a parallel illustration, this is from a guy named Neil Shinvey, who's, who's really good on this topic. Neil Shinvey said, okay, let's go to the first century in Israel. Is it true that there were ways in which, in an unbiblical way, uh, men oppressed women in, in ways in that society? That's true, right? There, there were ways in which that happened that was not biblical, not what God wanted. Was Jesus born into that society as a man? 
Yes. So if it is true that you inherit the guilt of being part of a demographic group that's been in some ways oppressive in the past, then Jesus was guilty of the sin of oppressing, oppressing women because He was a man in the society where women were in some ways oppressed beyond the Bible. But did Jesus ever stand up and say, you know, I'm, I'm, did He ever apologize for saying, I'm sorry that I've wronged women for, by being a part of this demographic group or I'm guilty of this sin because I'm part of this? That's not the way that worked. He was sinless. Despite being a man in that society at that time, he'd never sinned. And so, the, the idea that sin can be imputed to the whole group, not in the way with Adam or, with, or Christ's righteousness, but sin can be imputed as part of a group because you are a man or because you are white, because you are this or that, you are therefore guilty of this oppression. That's where we're crossing a line that, that we're, we're not to cross. Yeah, and, you know, thinking of that, like, again, it, CRT, critical race theory, um, goes so far sometimes, and, th- and this is… This is where you really have to stop and take notice. They will question the use of the metaphors of light and darkness. Because why? Light is seen as good. Darkness is seen as evil. And so they equate that and say, well, light, white, dark, black. If you you like those metaphors, then you're engaging in oppression. And so they're calling into question the very metaphors by which Scripture itself reveals God. First John says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so scripture itself by some, I mean, those in the, in the, who still claim Christianity haven't gotten there yet because if they, if they love the Bible at all, they, they have to be inconsistent with their position on this. Um, but they, there are some who would say the Bible is inherently racist if it promotes light as better than darkness. Because again, white supremacy putting down people of color. Um, and this book right here, Critical Race Theory, um, it's one of the, the foundational works. There's a much larger edition um, that's like seven or 800 pages. This is a, a smaller one um, that I read through a while back, underlined it, marked it up. Um, but I remember when I saw that, that, one, um, that one part where it was calling into question whether or not we can even use the, the categories of light and dark to describe things. Um, because According to critical race theory, you could probably be racist if you're doing that. And it's like, well, as Christians, we're subject to the Word of God, and God saw fit to reveal these categories. Had, there's no, 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 no even thought of skin color differences when God did that. He's teaching us things so that we can understand Him in contrast to evil, in contrast to sin, in contrast to holiness versus wickedness, and stuff like that. So again, you have to have certain fundamental assumptions in place to even see, that, to even begin to think that light and dark is a racist tool of oppression. Um, so, biblical opposition to critical race theory and accompanying ideologies. We, we got to get into this because this meets us also... Um, you know, we're, we're loosely a Southern Baptist church. A lot of us, you know, we, we're familiar with the Southern Baptist Convention at the very least. And, you know, several years ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a big um, dust up over a particular resolution called Resolution 9. Um, resolution 9, um, if you remember the, by what standard they talked about this, but Resolution 9 was, um, you know, it's not binding on Southern Baptist churches in any way, but it's, it kind of expresses a, a viewpoint that it, you know, they're saying we want to hold to this as Southern Baptists, and it was on critical race theory and intersectionality. Um, and the original submission of the resolution was by, I think it was a pastor who was like, man, he was doing his best to show how bad it was. Um, and instead, the resolutions committee completely changed it, and they, they put the wording in this resolution to say 
that critical race theory and intersectionality, while they reject the worldview, you can still use, use them as helpful analytical tools. So you might reject like the Marxist aspect, their view of, you know, oppressor and oppressed, but you can still use these as useful analytical tools. Um, and so the question is, is that even valid? Is that even a valid way to use something like this? And our contention is that no, it is not valid in any way. Um, the illustration I used a few months ago, um, you're familiar with, with the Lord of the Rings and, um, you know, the whole purpose of this, and if you haven't read it, I'm sorry, you might get a few spoilers here. Um, anybody here not read Lord of the Rings? Seen the movie. I've seen the movie? No. S- seen the movie. Okay, all right. One person. You, you don't know anything about it? Okay, do you care to know anything about it? Okay, so this <laughs> won't bother you. Good. I just, just want to be sure there. Um, so no spoiler alert then. Um, so anyway, the, the point of the movie is... The, the free peoples of Middle-earth are trying to destroy this ring that was created by the Dark Lord, Sauron. And through this ring, the Dark Lord can, can have power over all the different uh, uh, creatures and beings of Middle-earth, over elves, over men, over dwarves, over the hobbits, over everything. Um, and the, the goal of, of the, the book, the goal in the movie, is they're trying to destroy this ring. Because if they destroy the ring, then the Dark Lord himself can never come back, and he loses his power to do that. And one of the things that, that you learn in the, in the story is that nobody needs to use the ring. Because you can gain, gain great power if you use it, you can become invisible, um, you can do things, and the longer you use it, the more powerful you become. Um, but the, the problem is, even with one use, it starts to work its evil on you. It starts to change you. And so one of the biggest warnings comes when the wizard Gandalf is talking to the hobbit Frodo. You guys remember this from the movie. It's even more detailed in the book. Frodo wants to give the ring to Gandalf because Gandalf's a powerful wizard. He's like, hey, you can do something good with this. And Gandalf's like, not a chance. He's like, understand, I would want to use this ring to do good, but through me, it would do terrible evil. And Gandalf understood no matter how resolved he might be, no matter how strong his will to use it to do good, because it is inherently evil, it can't be used to do good. Even at the very beginning, while it might say, wow, look at what he's doing. Look at the, he's defeating our enemies. If you look close enough, you would start to see a taint of evil there um, because it would start to work its evil on him and eventually overthrow him all together. The only thing for a ring like that is to be destroyed. And in the end, if you remember this, even Frodo himself couldn't do it. It happened because Gollum bit his finger off, and as they were wrestling, or Gollum was, was celebrating, he stepped too far and fell in the lava. It was an interesting quirk of providence showing that there was an all-powerful being still working. But even Frodo, the hero of the story, he couldn't escape it in the end. He couldn't get rid of it. Why? Because that's the power of the ring. And I think what Tolkien was communicating with that image and with that, that picture of the ring was simply there are some things that are so inherently evil and poisonous, no matter your intention for good, you can't do good with it. It will corrupt everything you do. It will corrupt how you see the world. It will corrupt how you see people. It will corrupt everything you do. And that is the case, I think, of what's going on with critical race theory, intersectionality. These tools, so forth come out of an inherently wicked, evil, poisonous view of the world. 
You cannot separate the tool from the worldview. Why? Because these tools, critical race theory, intersectionality, standpoint theory, they are designed by the worldview to function a certain way. If you take those and say, well, we're going to you know, try to apply the gospel through this, guess what happens? You corrupt the gospel in the very attempt to apply the gospel through them. And that is exactly what we see happening in the church. And I've got some quotes here. This is, this is where we need to get um, got some quotes here. You say, is it really that bad? Are people really been affected by this? Um, I've got one I'm going to start out. Um, I do not know who this lady is, um, but I'll just r- read this. This is one that she's got some influence, uh, Christina Cleveland, and she said this. Some of the most, and listen here, again, you assume, you assume CRT, intersectionality, all the things we've talked about, and this is, this is an extreme example, but it'll probably be common before we know it. it, says some of the most beautiful feminist interpretations of the cross see it as a birthing center rather than cosmic punishment. As a woman, this resonates with me because Christ's tomb is also a womb. I'm eager to go beyond theologies of suffering and survival to also examine theologies of life, flourishing strength, meaning making, and black girl magic that stem from black women's experiences and perspectives. What does the cross say about black women's flourishing, life making, and magic? And what about God's blackness and femaleness on the cross reveal about who God is and what God is passionate about? That's what this theory does. Now, we know God God is a spirit. He's not flesh and blood. He's not white. He's not black. He's not brown. He's not Asian. God is, is, is other than us. He's not limited by human flesh and characteristics. And so to even impute a skin color to God is itself idolatrous. We can't contain God in something like that. That's, that's a slightly out there example. Let's get a little closer to home. This is by Jarvis Williams. He's a, actually a professor at the seminary that I attended. Um, and listen to what he says here. Uh, and again, he, is, he will talk in, a, in other places about um, white privilege, about um, white fragility. He'll use all these terms, even though he'll claim, you know, he, he doesn't believe them. But li- listen to this. This is where it goes, guys. It says, Southern Baptists need to develop a biblical theology of the gospel. Tracing the concept of the gospel from the Old Testament to the New Testament, um, the gospel includes, William says, both entry language, repentance and faith, justification by faith, reconciliation with God, and it includes maintenance language, Walking in the Spirit, reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, loving one another in the power of the Spirit. Do you hear the subtle difference there? Because he's going to go eventually to make a case for why we need to think in terms of critical race theory and use its insights and use, use it as a tool. How does he get there? How can he justify that? Well, the gospel, we want to be gospel-centered, right? He knows his audience. We want to be gospel-centered. We want to be about the gospel. Well, guess what? We need to be sure we understand that the gospel is not just about how you get made right with God. It's also about what you do once you're made right with God. That's entry language, justification. But then he just added a second category, maintenance language, which means what? Your works. You catch that? That is deadly. He, I don't think he has, and again, this is where you have, we, we have to be careful. I think Jarvis Williams thinks he is being faithful to Scripture. I think he thinks that he is doing the church a service by pointing these things out. But this entry and maintenance language is deadly 
to the gospel. Let's think about it a little more. The traditional quote-unquote view, the gospel is good news of how we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It, it announces not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ to make us right with him, what God alone has done. Okay, that's the traditional way. We don't add to Christ's work. We don't participate with Christ. We don't partner with him. We come with empty hands, empty-handed faith, and we receive what Jesus has done. That's, that's it. There's no, I'm going to do my part too. We receive what Jesus has done. That's what faith is. In William's view, yes, we receive the gospel by faith in Sri language, but the gospel is more than that. The good news also encompasses our life of obedience to the gospel. That is a departure from biblical Christianity. And that's a Southern Baptist Seminary professor saying that. It's good news for you from God that you need to obey God in order to truly receive the gospel. Because he has to justify some way to say, well, my view of racial reconciliation, my view of these things, he can't justify it unless he changes the gospel. Um, And he's inserting this into the gospel. Again, I, I think he's trying to be faithful, um, and, and I would hope that if we could sit down, I'd be bold enough to say it to his faith and be able to be clear, um, but he has departed from faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone. He has added something to the gospel, and when we hear something like that, entry language, maintenance language, that's the gospel, we need to have massive red flags and warning sirens going off in our head saying, whoa, wait a minute, something's wrong. You might not be able to identify it precisely, but we need to develop a, a theological reflex that says, whoa, something smells off about this. Something smells off and I'm not going to bite it. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to buy it until I can do some more research. You want me to keep going? Or you yeah, got, just, go ahead. Just jump in. So the, if you go back to the... Uh, over the last 50 years or so, you, you, well, I guess it was 100 years ago, you had something called the, the social gospel movement where essentially the biblical gospel was sidelined and acts of service became sort of central. And that was, it, we're all for acts of service, but acts of service became a replacement actually for the doctrinal teaching of the Bible. And what, it, what you ended up having was not really any gospel at all. You didn't really have Christianity. You just had sort of a social movement. And then uh, that sort of evolves over time. You get into the late 1990s, and there was something that most of us have forgotten about, but it was called the emergent church or the emerging church movement. Now, if you, if you were thinking about these things in the mid-2000s, it was dominant. It was everybody was talking. You had the Brian McLaren, and you had Rob Bell, and you had uh, all those guys. There was a whole bunch of these guys. Uh, and they, they had these churches that started, and they began to mock things like the atonement of Christ, that Christ bore God's judgment in our place. They said that's cosmic child abuse, and they pushed that to the side. They, they kind of made fun of what we think is the gospel, and they started talking a lot about social uh, justice issues, d- deeds of, of, of service, and they became huge in around 2004, 5, 6. They were huge. It was, just put it this way, I'm in Bible college in 2007, and I remember people had books on their shelves from both sides, the emergent church and then the more solid authors, and they would be sitting side by side on the same shelves. And my friends were trying to figure out what they thought about, you know, is Brian McLaren right with his book, A New Kind of Christianity, which was really, someone said, an old kind of heresy, or it was, you know, more solid writers. So that, that, that's in the mid-2000s, and that movement entirely disappears. 
Where's the emergent church? Thankfully, it, you know, it's gone. It's, it doesn't exist. And the reason that probably happened is because they didn't have really institutions behind them. They just had authors. So, th- they kind of fizzled out. But then you had these two, uh, these two groups that shaped me tremendously. You had the, the Together for the Gospel movement starting in about 2005-06, and the Gospel Coalition starting around the same time. A lot of the same people were in both movements. And this is kind of like a Reformed, Gospel-centered movement. And the, the goal was here, you know, Young, Restless, and Reformed was the title of these guys. And they, they wanted to start preaching the atonement of Christ, being centered on the gospel and doctrine, and it was a tremendously shaping thing for me personally. I can't even put into words how much those two groups shaped me in my doctrine. But, but then the, the scary thing is that even in those groups in the last three years, there's been, uh, you know, there's been a divide that's been forming. And so, like, if I can just grab this book. Go for it. Uh, where's, where's my copy? Of, oh, I got Vody's book right here. So, th- these books are written by two African-American pastors, both from the same movement. Okay, so uh, Eric, Eric Mason wrote Woke Church, and uh, Vody Bacham wrote Fault Lines. These are two African-American Reformed pastors. Both of them have been associated with Gospel Coalition over the years. Both of them have spoken at many conferences and events. They've both written books. And there was a time in which I liked both of them, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I still have his book on manhood, which I thought, you know, so anyways, so th- these guys coming from the same movement, and in the last five years or more, the, the way these two guys are talking sounds like two different languages. So, same doctrinal statement as of five years ago, same movement. They sound like they're coming from the same place, and I would have liked both of them maybe eight years ago. I, w- I would have said nice things about both of these guys. And today, I mean, just to be frank with you, you know, I don't know if this is good or bad, but there's a Twitter account, and there's a YouTube channel called Woke Preacher Clips. Be, it, be that as it may, I, I occasionally go on there just to see what the latest craziness is. And Eric Mason is a, is a loud participator. You know, these people get clips. Just recently, Eric Mason says in a sermon, and this is just, I think, very, I think it's like less than two weeks ago. He, he said, no, just to give you context, the foreword to this book was written by Lig Duncan. If you know who that, like, that's a credible Presbyterian voice in the Reform movement. And uh, he, he, one of his church members is Paul David Tripp. I mean, this is close to home, okay? Like Paul Tripp, like everybody loves Paul Tripp's books. We've always liked his stuff. And Paul Tripp's a member of this guy's church. So Eric Mason says, you know, recently, a couple weeks ago, African-Americans cannot be racist. Only white people can be. He said, because racism is not just prejudice, but prejudice plus, plus power. And only the white people have the power. Therefore, he said, I can be prejudiced towards you. I can call you racial names. I can make fun of you. He said, but I cannot be a racist towards you. Now, that's just unhelpful. That is just an unhelpful way to talk. I, I'm just like, what? So, if you, if you listen to his sermons or you've been tuning into him, he says stuff like that on a recurring basis and more and more just strange statements that he's been making over the last few years and, and uh, going further and further. Well, on the other side, you have Vody Bakum, who I don't think would be allowed to be part of the Gospel Coalition anymore, but Vody is now in Africa. And uh, Vody, I just love Vody Bakum. And this book, Fault Lines, subtitled The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicals Looming Catastrophe. He's arguing that there's a fault line, a tectonic line uh, uh, developing where there are people we've normally loved who are going to be on both sides of this issue. And, and he is, this book is excellent. I could not put this down. We have maybe six, seven or eight copies left if you want one at the end tonight. But he just talks about his personal story because, you know, real quick, Vody says, people tell him that he cannot speak because uh, he does not have, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? He doesn't have an authentic black voice because he does not have an authentic black experience. And so, he spends the first two chapters saying, um, 
I grew up without a dad, single teenage Buddhist mother in South Central Los Angeles, in gang-infested, drug-infested South Central Los Angeles. My cousin was killed in gang violence. He says, listen, whatever you think of as a black, he's like, I, I have an authentic experience. I know what I'm talking about here. And he goes through his whole life story and talks about what he used to believe and what he believes now. But he's come out and said, listen, right, right now, where the social justice movement is going right now is dangerous and harmful. And I'll be honest here, there are varying degrees to which people have believed this. So what, what Greg is expressing here is the extreme edge of where this is going, which is, which is not even Christianity. Like if, if you follow this to its logical conclusions, I believe you will end up distorting the gospel beyond recognition. I don't know that you will have a gospel at the end of this journey. Uh, but there, people are not all at the end of this journey. People are in different steps of this thing. And what, what Greg is trying to alert us to is this, the, the, there's a gravitational pull that if you take three steps into this movement, you may take a fourth and a fifth and a sixth because the logic is that you keep going. And so what, what, what uh, Eric Mason was saying five years ago did not sound like, what, what he was saying eight years ago did not sound like woke church. And what he's even said since he wrote this book sounds much further down the road than even what this book says. And so what, what you'll see is this movement has a way to, you buy into its premises and the premises almost worm into your logic and they start dragging you further and further away. So some people are maybe on step two and they don't sound that threatening, but I'm saying, Yes, but if this logic continues, they're going to continue down the road that Eric Mason has gone down and that other people are going down. And the end of this road is something other than biblical Christianity. The, the end of this road. I'm not saying anyone who, like, I'm not saying Lig Duncan is not a Christian because he wrote the foreword to this book. Lig Duncan, I have every reason to believe he's a believer and in many, many ways a very solid believer. But on this issue, when Lig speaks about it over the last five years, he's sounded increasingly strange. And, and a lot of people we love have sounded increasingly unreliable on, on some of these things. So that, just some, some thoughts on on, on relating those couple of pastors oh, as an example. Awesome. Um, all right, we've got time for a little more uh, for four times up. So I want to read you um, a little bit of a little bit from this um, because again, you, you have to have a foundation to justify this. If you're going to claim Christianity, you have to, you, you know, at least there's some reflex to say, well, we've got to ground this in the Bible somehow. But again, just like with, with uh, Jarvis Williams, um, Eric Mason falls into the same trap. In order to get to where you can mandate social justice, you can mandate their view of race and, and all of that, you do have to fundamentally alter the gospel and how we're made right with God. Listen to what Mason says in his book. I remember the first time I read this, I had to go back and read it multiple times because I was like, surely he's not doing this. Because again, gospel coalition, together for the gospel, this guy has preached the gospel faithfully. And I was like, surely he isn't doing this. I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. Um, and so listen to this. He says, justification is a huge greenhouse of truth that extends beyond being declared righteous. That one statement right there should awaken us that something's messed up. It goes beyond being declared righteous. So justification is more than God declaring us to be right in his sight through the merits of his son as we trust in Jesus alone. Justification doesn't stop there. It's broader than that. And listen, he said, justified isn't merely a position, but a practice. Christ's righteousness being, and again, you see the, the internal contradiction here. He wants to hold to the gospel while changing the gospel. And I don't think he sees that he's conflicting with himself because in the next statement he says, Christ's righteousness being imputed to us by faith leads to our being made right with God as well as our making things right on earth. Okay, justification produces real change. We agree with that. But that's not what he said to start. He says, knowing that Jesus will return, bring to completion the work that he's been doing through his people. Okay, he, he goes on talking about the language of justification in Scripture, the, the Greek language and all of that. 
Um, he says, we need to absorb the teaching of a guy named Austin Ferrer who wrote, God has no attitudes which are not actions. The two things are one. And he goes on to say this. In essence, we, have, we tend to have a one-dimensional understanding of justification. Um, he says, it's important to view Romans 5 and 6 and 2 Corinthians 5 as both intrinsic and extrinsic, meaning something that's done inside and outside. And then he goes on to quote um, a lady named Fleming Rutledge. And listen to this. It's a little bit technical, but at the end, I think it'll be clear. Okay, listen to this. It says, when a reader of the Bible discovers that the verb translated justify and the nouns justification, righteousness, and justice are the same word, the effect on that reader's understanding can be revolutionary. Ernest Kosman opened up a new understanding of the Greek term for this, traditionally translated justification, that continues to bear fruit into the 21st century. In his groundbreaking essay, The Righteousness of God in Paul, he shows that God's righteousness is not an attribute but a power, namely a power that brings salvation to pass. Thus, righteousness does not mean moral perfection. It is not a distant, forbidding characteristic of God that humans are supposed to try to emulate or imitate. There's no good news in that. Instead, the righteousness of God is God's powerful activity of making right what is wrong in the world. When we read in both Old and New Testaments that God is righteous, we are to understand that God is at work in His creation doing right. He is overcoming evil, delivering the oppressed, raising the poor from the dust, vindicating the voiceless victims who have no one to defend them. The way we are taught about these aspects of the gospel deeply affects our understanding and the way we process justice. When we have a reductionistic understanding of justification, we fail to see the holistic picture of the gospel. So righteousness is no, no longer a legal declaration by which God accepts us. It's a process of us doing right because God has said he will accept us. So your justification isn't complete with God saying you're righteous. Your justification is complete through your works of obedience to God. Y'all see the difference? Even Eric Mason has just denied the doctrine of justification by faith. He has redefined it in very subtle terms. And it sounds good. It plays to our heartstrings. It plucks them because we want to feel bad for the, for the very, like we said, the very real history of racism in this country. He knows people feel bad about that. He knows white people feel bad about that and other people as well. And so they, they play on that emotion and because you're so caught up in the, yeah, wow, you know, we should have done better. We should have done different. Man, yeah, that, that's right. Justification has to include this. And that's how you start to depart from the gospel. Yes, we cannot divorce the fact that if we have been justified, God will begin to work in us so that we start to become, we start to live a different life. He makes us new and then he begins to work that newness out into every aspect of our existence. But justification and the obedience that follows are not the same thing. Obedience flows out of justification, but it is not part of it. Okay, we have to keep that clear. That was the whole purpose of the Protestant Reformation. And go back even further to Paul dealing with the Judaizers in Galatia. They'd say, yeah, faith in Jesus is great, but you got to be circumcised too. You got to become a part of Israel too. You got to keep the Mosaic law too. All that's happened now is they've just switched out the things you're adding to faith in Christ. And Paul said, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
I think that's so all we got So in close with that, that's oh. uh, Galatians 2, 15 and 16. I could hear Papa think about it even though he's 47 feet away. We ourselves <laughs> are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, now listen, three times in one verse. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through um, faith in Jesus Christ. So we have been believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You're absolutely right, Greg. So we pray, and then uh, before we do, guys, again, we're going to pick back up with this next week. We've got more, more quotes, again, just to flesh this out and let you hear for yourselves um, why this is a big deal in the church. Um, it's not, a, like you said, it, it's, it's not some conservative boogeyman that we're creating in order to justify a position. We're not making stuff. Some people who would push back against what we're saying say, oh, we don't really believe that. We, 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 that's not really what Sierra. No, we're, we're going to show you this is actually what it is. Um, that it's not just our, our imagination. Um, and so that's where we're going to go next week is we're going to pick back up on this and keep working through. Look at more scripture. Look at examples where scripture is misused. Um, going to look at um, Tim Keller, some of the things he has to say on this because he's been very influential um, as well. So that will leave you with that. Um, I'll pray and then um, we can be dismissed. God, um, we thank you that uh, your word is clear. And I, I pray that we would always see it as clear. God, help us to contend for the truth. Lord, help us not to be swayed or seduced by the siren promises of the world. God, give us just an innate sense rooted in your word of, of what is right and what is wrong. Lord, incline our hearts to love what is right. Incline our hearts to love what is true. Lord, grant that we would have no stomach for ideas and teachings that assault who you are and twist the way we are supposed to view the world and view people. God, we know that what the Bible calls partiality manifests itself in some ugly, evil ways in our world. But Lord, help us stick to how the Bible talks about these things. Lord, help us to see that some tools, some ideas cannot be used for good. And Lord, give us grace, give us patience. Lord, as we will likely at some point have conversations with folks who have been deceived by these things, Lord, help us be kind, help us be gracious, help us be generous, help us, um, Lord, speak clearly. Um, and Lord, may your spirit work through the truth to open blind eyes. And um, as, as Jude would later say, to snatch people out of the fire, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Lord, we need your help to stay true and stay faithful, to stay anchored in your word in a culture, in a world that is increasingly hostile just to the basic truths of reality that there used to be no disagreement on. Lord, help us stay true to you. Help us stay rooted in you and in Christ and in your word. And Lord, use this church, Lord, um, Lord to, to continue to spread the true gospel an uncorrupted gospel, an untainted gospel, an undiluted gospel, an unmixed gospel. 
The gospel of justification, righteousness, right standing with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, help us preach a gospel that is not mixed with any of our works, but gives the glory and the praise solely to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, who bore all of our sin, paid its penalty in full so that there is no more penalty for us. Lord, may that be the gospel we preach. May we treasure it. May we love it more every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.